Welcome to the Right Take Podcast, news, ideas, and conversations at the intersection of politics and culture, a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center. I will be your host, Mark Tapson. Welcome back to the Right Take Podcast. I am your host, Mark Tapson. Thanks once again for joining me here at the intersection of politics and culture. I hope you and yours had a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday. You may have seen last week that the Supreme Court struck down Derek Chauvin's appeal to review his murder conviction. Derek Chauvin, of course, is the former white Minneapolis police officer convicted of murdering career criminal and substance abuser George Floyd back in 2020 in an infamous incident that sparked rioting and looting nationwide. Race hustlers like Al Sharpton, the leftist news media, and opportunistic politicians exploited the viral video of Chauvin appearing to kneel on the resistant suspect Floyd for something like eight minutes and weaponized it in their agenda to demonize law enforcement, defund the police, and promote their sick lie that America is a white supremacist nation. Speaking of sick lies, there's a brand new documentary out that looks back on the George Floyd phenomenon from a perspective you probably haven't heard before and exposes the grotesquely false narrative that the left constructed around it. It's a riveting, powerful film, which is currently free to stream on Rumble. I've seen it. I reviewed it for FrontPageMag.com, which you can go to to read. But don't take my word for it. Check out the film for yourself and come to your own conclusions. The producer of that film is an award-winning journalist and my guest today on The Right Take, and we're going to talk about not only the film, but her personal experience reporting on the Floyd controversy and being targeted for it by the cancel culture mob. It's an important story, and I guarantee you'll want to hear what she has to say about not only her experience, but the truth about George Floyd's death, how it was politically exploited, and what the devastating ramifications of that exploitation were, not only for the city of Minneapolis but for America. So stay tuned as we go into this awesome little musical interlude. Take a moment to subscribe to The Right Take also if you haven't already, so you don't miss any of the important conversations we're having here at the intersection of politics and culture. Be right back. My guest today at the intersection of politics and culture is multi-Emmy award-winning reporter and news anchor Liz Collin, who is now with Alpha News in Minneapolis. She's also the author of the book, They're Lying, The Media, the Left, and the Death of George Floyd. And she has just produced a documentary based on that book called The Fall of Minneapolis, which, as I said in my opening remarks, is now streaming for free on Rumble. And we're going to talk about that today. In my review of the film on frontpagemag.com, I gave it two thumbs up as film critics Siskel and Ebert used to say, it is really riveting, enlightening, and powerful. Liz Collin, welcome to the Right Take Podcast. Hi, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Liz, I think it's fair to say that you have earned a reputation as somebody who cares deeply about bringing the truth to light, even at the expense of personal consequences. You're clearly not the kind of journalist that seems to dominate the mainstream media now, which is someone who sees herself as a social justice activist first and a reporter second, or maybe even third or fourth. Tell us a little bit about your background and what drove you to want to become a reporter in the first place. You know, it's funny. It started early on for me, Mark. I was uh, five or six years old, as a matter of fact, and would always tell people that um, I wanted to be on the news someday, (laughs) work as a, a television reporter. I kind of had a very early sort of fascination. I think I was just a naturally curious person. Some 
people perhaps called me nosy back in the day, <laughs> uh, but I just enjoyed, um, you know, getting getting to know people, and, and um, you know, I think that that's kind of what uh, has propelled propelled me forward. But I started actually a newspaper when I was ten years old. Um, and I started anchoring the news when I was ni- 19. I actually graduated just with my two-year degree out of college. I eventually went back as I was anchoring the morning show to get my uh, four-year degree. So yeah, I started I started very early on. Liz, is it hopelessly out of fashion now for a journalist to strive for objectivity and dig for the truth when uh, journalism, or well, mainstream journalism anyway, it seems to be all about political activism? What, what do you have to say about journalists who believe that they have an obligation not just to neutrally report the news, but to shape narratives that they believe will put them on what they call the right side of history. Yeah, you know, I kind of have a unique perspective just being uh, a member of the mainstream media. Frankly, um, I was I was in it for nearly 20 years uh, before before I left. But I, I really um, was kind of troubled probably the last five or six years of, of my career. Again, not so much what we were telling the public, but what we decided just to stop telling them. Um, it just seemed like it was one side of the story. And, you know, it was kind of, I mean, I'm not that old, but I, I've been around, I've been around a while, but, um, you know, we had a lot of kids right out of college and they were, you know, seemingly a lot more to to the left. Um, and I've never really been a considered, you know, considered myself a political person per se. Um, but it, it definitely seemed like, um, you know, they were more indoctrinated with their education than um, really being, looking at, something as a critical thinker, as a journalist to try to represent both sides, uh, et cetera. And what about Alpha News? Tell us what it's like working there, because they they seem to have uh, more of a a truth-oriented mission than the mainstream media. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I I feel like, you know, we need to say that we're we're more of a conservative news organization, but it's not, um, it's funny that we even have to say that, frankly, uh, because I feel like we really just report the truth where I was in the, the me, the mainstream media before. And I just wish almost that they would be more honest with people and just say that they're going to be, uh, you know, more, more to the left. Uh, but, but it's, it's very freeing. Uh, I'll say to work at alpha news. I've been there for a couple of years now where there isn't an agenda. You just kind of, you know, this is where the, the story is going to take you. And I, you know, they allowed me to do this um, documentary, I think for that reason, uh, just because we knew there was so much more um, at, at play here. Tell us about covering the whole George Floyd incident as it unfolded and and also how you personally became part of the story when the cancel culture mob came for you and your husband. You you address that in the book, um, but not in the film. Tell us about that. Yeah, Mark. So um, I had been at uh, WCCO, it's the CBS station um, in, in Minneapolis, uh, for nearly 12 years by the time uh, that this incident happened with George Floyd. And I'd been married um, for a few years at the, at the time to um, a longtime uh, police lieutenant for the Minneapolis Police Department, Bob Kroll was his name and is his name. I shouldn't talk about him in the past tense. I am still married to the guy. Uh, but <laughs> but uh, he, he was the union president at, at the time. And, um, you know, no longer would WCCO, because of this incident, let me um, anchor the news anymore. I wasn't allowed to report on basically anything, crime, government, um, et cetera. Uh, and I really did have a very loud voice in my newsroom before, someone who did have a lot of sources and did, uh, but I was very much put in a closet because right away I tried to to counter this and just say, you know, I, that's why I did call my book, uh, They're Lying, The Media, the Left, and the Death of George Floyd, because I just kept shouting, you know, they're lying. Why? I mean, it's our job to hold these people accountable and to get at the truth, but nobody would listen to me. Um, and, you know, also that the mob came after me 
threatening my life, you know, the lives of my family members. Um, And it was just a very, you know, chaotic time. So I wasn't really reporting um, in that capacity um, where I was at WCCO because I wasn't, you know, I clearly wasn't allowed to, but more than anything, um, nobody seemed to care about the truth. Everybody seemed to be all caught up in, um, you know, uh, you, you could only go one way with this uh, story and, and, you know, you, you better, you better not go the other way or, you know, here, here's, you could be without a career or, you know, uh, you could be killed. Who, who knows? <laughs> and so you were getting death threats and the, the mob actually showed up at your house, didn't it? Or at least your place of work or both? Yeah. So um, very early on, um, you know, again, as reporters, you could see the outside money pouring into Minnesota through all of this Black Lives Matter. Really, um, you know, Minneapolis became ground zero for that for that movement once again. And um, they they sponsored uh, Black Lives Matter sponsored a protest outside a our station at the time where I was working during a six o'clock newscast demanding that I be fired. Uh, they also were behind uh, two different protests that happened at our house. We live in the, the suburbs of Minneapolis. We had a total of uh, four protests. But, you know, if you if you look around, there are people who don't even know who I am. They're spelling my name wrong on the, on the signs. Uh, many of them are, are not even from Minnesota. These are not our, you know, our viewers per, per se. But, the you know, the station where I work certainly did not go to bat for me. And, um, that, that's sort of how it was. It was mob rule. And, uh, we, we, you know, we, we frankly gave these, uh, these folks an awful lot of power, um, in this state, you know, the match was struck in Minneapolis and obviously spread all across the country. You think the cancel culture mob would have come for you over, uh, accusations of, of bias if you had been married, not to someone involved with police union, but to maybe the head of the local chapter of Black Lives Matter? <laughs> well, that's what that's what's in- interesting. There are awful lot of connections in uh, newsrooms uh, here in Minneapolis that uh, I will say that, you know, before my husband, I was actually married uh, to a guy who worked for the, the Democratic Party. I never had any protests, uh, strangely, at my house over that marriage, which was very strange. Um, but uh, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I do know that it was just sort of this um, everybody got caught up and, um, you know, sort of blaming the union. So then that my husband's the president of the union. So of course it's their fault what transpired with George Floyd. And uh, therefore I'm married to him. So it's, I have to be blamed as well. And, you know, it just became, we were kind of public targets in all of this, I guess. So you wrote the book, They're Lying. And uh, who exactly did you mean by they in the title? Yeah. Um, so it's They're Lying, uh, the media, the left and the death of George Floyd. So, so by uh, they, um, I say the media and uh, politicians, specifically the left, and I, and I highlight that quite a bit in, in the book, and I actually think even more so in the film, just because you're able to actually kind of see and hear these people in their own words um, in the, the days that followed uh, the death of, of George Floyd. The lies really began from the, from the very beginning, and we're still paying the consequences to this day uh, for those lies. Well, the book got a lot of attention. It was an Amazon bestseller for many weeks, right? So uh, why then did you decide to produce this documentary also, uh, The Fall of Minneapolis? You know, I was very close to the story, obviously, with my um, husband. And, um, you know, I really i had been surrounded by a lot of these people. And I could really tell that they're quite broken uh, for good reason. 
over over all of this, uh, leaving these uh, pro- profession this profession that that they loved. Um, you also have family members with their loved ones in in prison uh, over a lie. And I, I also know that not everybody reads uh, books nowadays or can find the time to do so. Uh, so this was a way to to still get get the story in, in front of people, and and it's a story that you know matters. Um, we're all more unsafe than we've you know, pretty much ever been before, um, you know, due to what's what's happened to law enforcement and this uh, demonizing of law enforcement. Then we wanted to offer the uh, film for free um, so as many people would see it as as possible. Uh, tell us about the crowdfunding aspect of making the film. As somebody who's experienced the difficulty of getting a film concept funded, I'm curious about how uh, and why you went the crowdfunding route on this one. You know, I knew that um, the book had done well, and it seemed that there was some, um, you know, I, and I also knew that I could do it cheaply. I, I kind of am a producer and a reporter, so I kind of could, you know, wear a couple hats behind this. And then um, great guy that I worked with, uh, Dr. J.C. Shea, uh, he was the editor of the book, and he became the, the director and writer as well. So we could kind of cover a few different jobs just among the the, the two of us. And we brought on a, a young guy, Josh Feeland is his name, who was able to handle the, the soundtrack editing and he was there to, to shoot the interviews. So we only had to hire out just a, you know, a couple of positions to, to help. So I knew it didn't have to be a, a huge undertaking as far as, um, you know, money is concerned. So we begged for a little bit of money uh, up front and it worked, <laughs> worked out. People, um, you know, believed it, believed in the cause in order to, as I said, uh, you know, spread, spread this truth uh, to whoever would uh, take the time to watch it. Well, kudos to all of you because it's really professionally done. It certainly doesn't come across as a, you know, a low budget film or anything like that. It's, it's got a really good look. And uh, also the music I, I thought was well done too. Um, I thought it was interesting that you called the film The Fall of Minneapolis and not something more, uh, you know, clickbaity and provocative and manipulative, like maybe, you know, the shocking truth about the George Floyd hoax or something. Uh, It seemed like the tone you were going for in the in the title and in the film was to try to convey that the tragedy and impact that all of this had on the Minneapolis community and police department. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think absolutely. This really was a, you know, a local thing for us. Um, but I think it's relatable no matter which city you might watch it in um, or, or where you might be. Um, you know, some people have given us kind of criticism saying, you know, this should have been called the the fall of America. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and I also just, you know, want to convey too, it's not a story I wanted to ever tell. I wish it's something that if everybody, I am positive uh, to this day, if they would have told the truth about this from the beginning, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't put out a book. I wouldn't. Um, but I just felt like, you know, this is something I, I have to do. It was um, more of a calling than than anything else. There are so many disturbing lies that are exposed in the film that it's hard to zero in or sort them out. But uh, was there one aspect of this controversy or of what you cover in the film that you f- find to be the most egregious or unconscionable lie or uh, deception? You know, I think all of um, the, I shouldn't say all, but many of the lies are contained um, in in the actual uh, incident I- itself. So this is a call um, that that you have um, Alex King, who's a, a he's only been on the job for three days. Who's with Thomas Lane? He's been on the job for four days. They respond to and in, and again you have 
you have George Floyd talking about how he can't breathe long before Derek Chauvin arrives on scene. Uh, you have George Floyd talking about how he had COVID. You have George Floyd talking about how he, um, you know, didn't take anything. He didn't take any drugs. You also have the, the officers call for an ambulance 36 seconds after George Floyd himself asks to be laid on the ground. You have the officers talking about MRT, this maximal restraint technique which uh, the, the police chief lied about that it wasn't a part of police training. Most of, most of the truth is contained in this body camera footage, but the reason it's a lie is because it was withheld from the public uh, for nearly two and a half months, and most people never took the time to ever go back and, and watch it. The damage had already been done. And, you know, like Liz, like many or maybe all Americans today, the officers that you interview in this film, they no longer have any trust in our so-called justice system. One of them told you, and I'm going to quote him here, I think we've come to the point where the justice system has been controlled by a mob mentality. Social media, news outlets and peer pressure now control the outcome of trials and investigations, unquote. Uh, Can you give us your thoughts on that and what you think we could do to turn away from influences like that that pervert justice? Yeah, and I think what's so telling, too, here, Mark, is that that quote you're talking about comes from Alex King, the black police officer who arrested George Floyd. Um, also something that is very clear in the body camera footage, but we're, we, you know, this is rammed down by our throat rammed down our throats by the media, um, by the left, that this is the most racist police incident that's ever transpired in, in U.S. history. Well, Alex King's story certainly didn't match that that narrative. Um, but, but I think that, you know, exactly. And I'm glad you bring up, bring up that quote, cause I think that really is the takeaway here that we have to be better than this and not fall for this race bait as he calls it. And, um, you know, be critical thinkers and, and know perhaps that there's more, more at work here. Um, and, uh, it, you know, it, it's sad. It was very sad. I mean, I've talked to Alex many times, um, to be having this conversation, are these conversations with him, you know, well, he is going to be a lifelong felon now, even when he gets out of uh, prison for this. You've been a news anchor, basically the face of a news station, and you could have put yourself front and center in this film and essentially been the face of the film, too. I think a lot of reporters would have done that. But you limit your presence in the film to just asking some questions without any commentary of your own, and you let your subjects speak for themselves, especially these police officers who until now have not been given a voice in this controversy that devastated many of their lives. I think that's very admirable on your part and effective, too, in terms of the film. I bet the officers that you spoke with were just beyond grateful that you gave them a public voice when no one else would. Yeah, you know, I think it took a little convincing to get a few of them, a few of them there, you know, a lot of these, um, these guys and gals, they sign up to protect and serve and, you know, don't want to be the face of any of this. But I think that, you know, some healing also took place by being able to share their stories. And and thankfully, you know, they are getting a lot of uh, feedback. I think we have almost 2 million views on the, on the film at this point, which has been uh, amazing. And so many people thanking them uh, for speaking up because their story, they, they're really telling a lot of other people's stories uh, through, through their own words as well. And that's, you know, I, I, I've never been one to, uh, and sadly, I think that's what the media has become a little bit. It's more narcissistic now than it's ever been before that people don't seem to have that curiosity and empathy uh, toward people. Um, and that's something, you know, I, I've always had. And, you know, it just seems like, you know, with the advent of social media and cell phones and whatever, 
Um, you have a lot of journalists that they think the story is about them. And, the, and you know, this incident and such had nothing to do um, with me, but I knew that I had skills and talents to be able to share these, you know, to share these, these stories that were such, they're sadly such an important part of history. And I, my hope is that we can learn something from them. Why do you think that state and local politicians at the time, like the governor and mayor of Minneapolis, uh, were so quick to throw their own police departments under the bus and even risk the lives of these officers by denying them just the, even the basic safety measure of putting on riot gear? Yeah, I think that um, so much of this had to do with the presidential election. Um, this was kind of another layer here, ousting uh, then President Trump at, at all costs. And, um, you know, it lined up timeline wise, uh, I, I think, uh, when it comes to, to that. And we know that, um, you know, the background of many of these people, you have uh, Jacob Fry, the mayor of Minneapolis, he was a civil rights attorney, you have Ben Crump in town, uh, who has a long history of, of doing the, these things. And, and again, the media just goes again and again, um, you know, to the these people who, um, you know, have these loud bullhorns in these situations, I guess. It's pretty easy reporting when somebody has a, a news conference every day, right, that you have to uh, cover. Uh, but it just seemed that nobody was actually caring about what actually transpired or the case itself. It was more about this narrative than anything else. And they certainly didn't seem to care about the the police the officers themselves or the police department, um, because that's not part of the narrative. The narrative is that, uh, you know, police departments across the nation are shot through with racism and uh, that they need to be defunded and maybe even abolished altogether. Uh, what do you think the end game of the left is with this ludicrous pro-crime notion that police and not criminals are the problem with society and that police departments are hopelessly racist? Yeah, you know, I think a lot of it, um, and we see this in, in Minneapolis as uh, Democrats have, have gone uh, more and more to the left, but you have outright socialists who are in power um, in, in Minneapolis. And I also think, uh, you know, you, you have these uh, departments enter into these consent decrees with the federal government, and they come in and, um, you know, there, there's a money exchange there and a power exchange there. So I think that's at play too. Um, and I don't think, you know, a federal police force is, is out of the, the, you know, picture or it, it, I think that's part of the, the cards here too. So I, I think that, you know, even what Alex says is in the film, Alex King is, you know, know that there's more at play here. This isn't, um, you know, it's a, a bit of a, a chess game, and it's sad that um, how many people's lives were ruined uh, in, in the wake of, of all of this. And it just seemed that many, many people were just being used. They were pawns in this in this game. Yeah, sadly. Uh, we've touched on this a little bit before, but your your film is mostly localized to the Minneapolis impact. But that city can actually serve as a sort of a microcosm of America in the larger sense, can it, uh, in terms of the left's nationwide movement to demonize police and defund police departments. Oh, absolutely. And I think that, um, you know, you know, calling it the, the fall of Minneapolis, uh, you know, as I said, I think other cities can, can certainly relate We're, you know, the Minneapolis police department lost uh, almost 40% of its uh, police force <clears throat> um, in the wake of all of this. There were nearly 900 police officers and um, about 400 have left so far in the last three years. 
Uh, I guess you heard the news this that this week the Supreme Court struck down Derek Chauvin's appeal to review his murder conviction. What what do you think about that? Yeah, you know, I don't think that was much of a surprise. Uh, the, the point I try to make in the, the film and in the book, too, it's almost as if the script was written before the trial even started. Um, it was kind of a, a long shot to get the U.S. Supreme Court to, to take this case. Uh, there are a couple more legal maneuvers. I know that um, I've been in touch with uh, Derek Chauvin's attorney and, and Derek himself, and there's a couple other things they're they're looking at here. Um, but but yeah, this uh, it, it also seems strange timeline wise that the the U.S. Supreme Court came out as quickly as they did to say that they they won't. But um, but yeah, that was kind of a long shot from the beginning. As I understand it. Uh... Talking to you was the first time that uh, Derek Chauvin and uh, his fellow officer um, in prison t- uh, spoke with the media about this or directly to the media. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's right. I think, um, you know, um, I, I was kind of in touch with uh, some of their families early on with the, the book and, and such, too. But there was kind of a, a large group of us that, um, you know, our careers were canceled in some way, shape or form. And I think that's mostly uh, a lot of law enforcement in the wake of all this. So it's kind of this, I don't know, support group, as weird as that sounds, that we have for each other. It's sort of like, you know, you almost kind of get it. Um, Obviously, you know, I have my freedom and and such, but it's just really horrific what what happened with uh, them. And also, um, they saw how the other media reported on this story. Um, it didn't seem that the media even cared about the truth, to be quite honest. Um, I talk about this in the book, but the station where I worked, it was about a week after George Floyd, and they put in a mandate that half of the people we interview um, have to be non-white or from a protected class um, if we're going to do an on-camera interview. So I'm saying, okay, so now we're implementing racism, and this is what we think is, you know, that, that is absolutely what racism is, that we have to judge people on their skin color before we decide whether or not to interview them. Um, but again, you could just see these stations were setting, uh, you know, sort of their own agendas in the wake of all this. And like I said, I just don't think they even cared about the actual truth. Are you optimistic or pessimistic that we can turn around this culture of uh, journalistic uh, deception and manipulation? You know, I, th- I am actually hopeful. Um, and I say that just because I really had no expectations with a book or even, uh, you know, the, this this movie and whatnot, but the, the fact that so many people have read the book and, and so many people have seen this in such a short amount of time, the actual documentary itself, um, it does go to show that people are hungry for, for the truth and they're tired of these lies. Um, you can name many stories. It's not just the George Floyd incident, um, to, to be sure. And also, you know, we have a, we have a way now of reaching these people that we didn't have before. I mean, that's why I I jumped ship. I knew that you don't you don't need a fancy television station in downtown Minneapolis anymore. Um, people don't watch the news like like they used to. You can you know get them on social media. You can get you know get their attention in other in other ways. And I also think that people uh, I could even see it in my time in, in mainstream media that the ratings had had certainly taken taken a dip. And people just it's it, you know lies by omission. We talk about that, or it's every single story is the same on every newscast in the same order told the same way and, you know, oh, here's weather. Um, It's sort of the same, or here's a story about a dog. Um, Nothing really, nothing really in depth. And they, you know, they don't really take the the time uh, to, you know, fully explain things. So I I actually feel good about the future of media because I do think that, um, 
you know, there's there's still a lot of very good people um, finding the truth. And I also think that a lot of in, independent media will be the people to break big stories. I think that that's just the way it's going to it's going to be. Liz, what's maybe the biggest message or insight that you hope viewers will take away from your film? You know, a, a couple things. I think, um, you know, we've already spoken to what Alex um, talks about with, you know, just just don't fall uh, for these things that, you know, media and politicians are, are pushing down your throat. You know, think, think for yourself, let's, let's be better than this. Is this what we want our justice system to look like? Um, but also on, you know, and this is, this is obviously me speaking as the, the spouse of now a now retired law enforcement officer, but also as a, a citizen of the, this country as well, is we need to do more to support our police. There's no other profession uh, that is put under the microscope, like, um, you know, the, our men and women um, are who who wear the badge, and, and even as a reporter, long before my, my husband even came along, I took a, a citizens academy and I did what I could to you know better understand how to report on on police issues and, and such. Um, you know, we're not filling our, our jails with doctors or you know other people. You know, if we're forcing them to wear uh, cameras on you know their job, certainly are there issues of uh, you know obviously, but um, you know there's issues with the human race. There's, uh, you know, bad apples in, in every profession, but what this has turned into has, has made us all, um, you know, less safe and we need to get back to, to supporting our, our police. Exactly. Well said. Liz, what is the best way for people to follow you and keep up with what you're doing and what are you planning to do next? I, uh, I, I'm still working for Alpha News. So alphanews.org, uh, I have a podcast on there called Liz Collin Reports, kind of Minnesota um, conversations and such that we take a look at things that the mainstream media does not. Um, and also um, I'm on uh, thefallofminneapolis.com is where you'll find more information about the film. Um, and there's some information about the, the book there as well. But we have uh, some things coming out, things you didn't see in the film. We're going to be releasing that in the, in the coming weeks here, Mark. So I hope um, people will stay tuned uh, for that. And we always have some, some interesting projects over at Alpha News. So I encourage people to sign up. It's just a, a free email you get every day. We're a nonprofit. You know, so we beg for money a little bit, but everything is, uh, is free to read and such. Excellent. People, we've been talking with Alpha News journalist Liz Collin author of the book They're Lying, The Media, the Left, and the Death of George Floyd, and the producer of a brand-new must-watch documentary called The Fall of Minneapolis, which is now streaming for free on Rumble. And it's also streaming on, on the movie's website. Is that right, Liz? Yeah, you'll find it. You'll find it there. And it, we've actually put it now to YouTube, and it is on X as well. So it's easy to find. We uh, Once we hit a million views on Rumble, we, we put it uh, elsewhere. And we still haven't been taken down uh, from YouTube just yet, Mark. So we'll keep it posted. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Somehow it's flying under the radar, I guess. Liz Collin, thanks for coming on the Right Take Podcast. Thanks for standing up for the truth and keep up the great work. Thank you, Mark, very much. I appreciate it. Listeners, thank you again for joining me here at the intersection of politics and culture. Don't forget to subscribe to the Right Take so that you can keep up with all the important conversations we're having here. And if you like what you hear, please leave that positive review. Be seeing you. The Right Take with Mark Tapson is a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center and Front Page Magazine. Unauthorized reproduction of this podcast without express written consent is prohibited.